how many of you guys are the ones that have all of your shopping done already? Dude, I'm in good company right now. How many of you guys have absolutely none of your shopping done? How many of you guys are about like 50-ish? Give it, okay, okay. You guys, good news is you still got time, right? The other good news is, is if you haven't started yet, I'm sure you will join many other husbands, I mean people <laughs> at Meyer or wherever it might be on Christmas Eve getting the last minute gift. But one thing that I've been a little bit aware of this holiday season is, is that when shopping and when preparing to ship stuff out, I've been dealing a lot with these things, boxes. Anybody else? And it almost seems like you have so many boxes that you kind of hold on to over the, the year because you're like, oh, this box would be great come Christmas time because I'm going to need it to send to so-and-so or to ship to so-and-so, right? And they're all different sizes. They're all different heights and widths. And, you know, my good friend, Amazon Prime. Man, I get all these great boxes. And, and what's interesting is when you put together the boxes, when you get things ready to ship out, some certain things you can just chuck in there and you tape it up and you slap the label on and it's good to go, right? But then there's other items that you have to put a little bit of cushion around it. You have to bubble wrap it. Maybe you stack some newspapers around it. You surround it so that it can't get broken. What's intriguing though is this, is that a lot of times when we build these boxes, we don't only build them to keep the things inside safe, but we also build them to keep things out of them, right? If I put something in the box, I don't want other things to go in that box. It's this hedge of protection. It's also this opportunity to keep the thing inside from being maybe tainted, corrupted, or broken. And I think a lot of times this analogy for me of boxes is something that I've even seen myself do in my own life. I'll build a certain box and I'll put certain relationships in it. I'll build a certain box and depending on what it is, I'll put certain groups of people in it. Like for this box, I would build it and maybe this box is a box that I'd say, you know, a lot of my relationships in this box, I would identify as being broken or hurting. And I'd stick this box and I'd put the label on it and I'd stick the certain relationships in this box because these relationships, these people are broken and they're hurting. And if I'm just being honest, sometimes I just don't want to deal with them. There's other boxes too that I've built and I've put people in like this box. It's a little bit bigger. It's a little bit deeper. Because the people I'd put in this box are a little bit more messy. They come with a little bit more baggage and junk. And these people, I would even say in some ways, I would look at and I would identify them as, and I'm guilty of this too, of being so rejected, maybe even so lost. But I don't know if there was really any hope. These relationships would be ones that maybe I've tried many times before, 
But I've just gotten to a point of saying, you know what, maybe it's time for me to just give up. <clears throat> Throw in the towel. We do this often. Whether we want to admit it or not, we do this often. Unconsciously or consciously, we build boxes and we place people in boxes. And for some of these boxes, maybe there's smaller boxes and maybe there's good boxes, right? The box of our closest friends and we want people to stay there because that box makes us feel really good. But these boxes, these boxes are boxes that I think every single one of us have in our lives. And if I'm being even very honest, I think we not only build boxes and put people in them, but I think there's also a box that we do and we build and we place God in. We place Jesus in. Because there's moments in our lives where Jesus makes us uncomfortable. When you really think about this Christmas story, when you think about the story of Jesus and how God left heaven came to earth, was born of a virgin teenage girl, was born in a stable, a manger, dirty, filthy nastiness, grew up as this young boy, son of a carpenter, had to learn the trade, and then at the age of 30 was rejected and betrayed and, and did ministry, and then his closest friends were the ones who ran and scattered. Do we understand that this story of this Jesus makes us really uncomfortable? And his teachings made us really uncomfortable. So what do we do when people make us uncomfortable? We stuff them in a box because we can contain them in the box. We do this with God. We try to. We try to. We try to place him in a box so he doesn't move. Or maybe we ship him off because somebody else needs him a little bit more than I do right now. Or how many times have we even tried to bubble wrap God? We don't want to have him get hurt. So we'll bubble wrap him, we'll keep him safe, we'll make him this dude with super long hair holding a sheep and so smiley and peaceful all the time that he'll never get hurt. We place him in a box. What I appreciate about this series that we've been in, Christmas Scandals, is when you look at the text of Matthew 1 that we're going to dig into in a minute, when you look at this text, when you understand the reality of what Matthew did in this text, we have to understand that this text, Matthew himself, when writing this, did not put the story of Jesus in a nice, tidy, well-maintained box. If anything, Matthew took what was in the box and dumped everything out and said, let's have a little fun with this. Let's get a little messy. Let's make things not right. Because when we read the text of Matthew 1, there are people in this genealogy that by all means in the Jewish account should never have made it. Last week we talked about Bathsheba and Tamar. Are you kidding me? If you were here last week, you understand and you know the dynamics of that story. Tamar and Bathsheba, the sexual sin and brokenness. And you write that into the story of Jesus? What are you thinking, Matthew? And today's no exception. 
We're going to look at one verse today in Matthew 1. You can read the whole entire genealogy. Today we're going to focus on Matthew 1, verse 5. This is what it reads. Salmon, Salmon, whatever one you prefer. The father of Boaz, whose mother was, say it, Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse would be the father of David, King David. You know the one that we talked about last week, the brokenness. And what's intriguing is that Matthew lists by name Rahab and Ruth. We have to understand that there are some dynamic implications here. We have to also understand that this doing of Rahab and Ruth causes the Jewish audience to really squirm in their seats. Let's, we're going to look at them kind of separately, Rahab's story. If you know the story of Rahab, Rahab is, is this prostitute, whoo, prostitute, and she's in the genealogy. And, and what was so important about Rahab, what was so dynamic about Rahab is this, is that when the, the Jewish spies came to scout out the land in Jericho, they showed up to the prostitute's house, to hide. Can I just, for a moment here, take a time out? In our modern day culture, even in the modern day Jewish culture right now, we've tried to whitewash this story. And we would say that Rahab was not a prostitute, but she was an innkeeper because it makes us feel a little bit better about God's people showing up to the house. Ha! She was a prostitute, y'all. Just, let's just get that card on the table. Let's not hide it. She was a prostitute. There's no whitewashing it. There's no trying to clean this up. The Jewish men who are scouting out the land in Jericho show up to the house of a prostitute, a known prostitute. And she hides them. She hides them from her leaders. She hides them on the roof and, and she keeps them safe. Why? Because she has heard about the miracles of this God. And she starts to turn her faith towards him. And unlike the rest of her country that is worshiping pagan gods, she starts to turn her heart and her faith towards the one true God, Yahweh. And in her profession, Joshua tells us in his book, Joshua tells us, is a prostitute. And we have to understand this, that this was a viable and honestly, the only profession for a woman like her. She's vulnerable. She has no husband. She has no family. This is the only way that she can survive to be a prostitute. She's not an innkeeper keeping up the Holiday Inn. She's a prostitute. And we all know what that means and the implications of what that goes, that goes with it. And so when we take this broad stroke, when we get this, take this moment and we just zoom out a little bit, we have to understand that here we have a Canaanite woman who most of the time would be living on outskirts of the town. So she's literally an outsider. She's literally outcasted. 
She's living on the very outer skirts of the town in a pagan culture, and she's a prostitute that is a woman, and yet she's listed in this genealogy. You see, what's so interesting is Rahab, Rahab is exactly the type of person who is broken and hurting. She's exactly the type of person who we would see as that one right there. The broken and the hurting, this is the Rahabs. The ones that are outskirts, the ones that we've pushed out a little bit, the ones who in a lot of ways we see as being too sinful, too broken, too far gone. You do what for your profession? There's no way that you can have hope. This is Rahab. And what's so intriguing is that when you read the story of Rahab, when we understand why she is included in this genealogy, we understand that Rahab's life is evidence that Jesus is always bringing in the outsiders. That Jesus has grace for us all, the insiders and the outsiders alike. That Jesus has grace for us all. The broken and the hurting, Jesus has grace for Rahab's name in this genealogy shows us that nobody's excluded. The outsiders are not excluded. Those who are, are seen by religious institutions as too damaged or even exploited and sinful. Those overlooked at their value in life. Those passed over and neglected. They all have a place in Jesus' family. And it's through his grace and his presence. And when we not only look at Rahab, but then we transition to Ruth. Ruth. If you've been around the church, maybe you've heard Ruth's story a little bit. And for some of us, we would even start to ask ourselves the question of like, why is Ruth Ruth controversial? But did you understand, do we understand that Ruth probably perhaps is actually the most scandalous name in this genealogy. It's not Tamar. It's not Bathsheba. It's not even Mama Mary, Virgin Mary. It's Ruth. Why? You see, unlike the three other ladies that we've talked about, Bathsheba, Tamar, and Rahab, Ruth does not have a sexual exploitation uh, with her name. It's not because she is looked at as this sexually, you know, broken backstory. She's not a victim of abuse. Rather, Ruth is so scandalous. And, and the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish person would read her name and would start to squirm more than any other name. Why? Because she is like the sworn enemy of the Jews. She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. And the Moabites were the sworn enemies of God's people, the Jewish people. And so Ruth here is literally, essentially, the way I would see it, the Ohio State Buckeyes to my Michigan Wolverines. The arch nemesis, the enemy of all enemies. This is like the brokenness of like Ruth. She is so far gone. 
She has zero hope in, in, in anywhere. Like, there's no way Ruth should be included in this. She is the sworn enemy, enemy of the Jewish people. She's not even just a Gentile. This is like the worst of the worst of the worst. Like, the Moabites weren't even allowed to enter the temple gates to worship in Israel. They worshiped idols. They gathered together and they refused to help Israel as they made their way through Egypt. For many of us, probably when I say sworn enemy, whether we admit it or not, unconsciously or consciously, for some of us, there's somebody that comes to mind. Whether we want to admit it or not, the sworn enemy. You see, and what's interesting with Ruth's story is there's a famine that hits. And during this famine, it, it sent the, the family of Naomi and uh, Limanek and their sons to Moab to survive. And during this time, Ruth's life would be one of difficulty and deep sorrow. She would watch not just her husband, but she'd watch her brother-in-law and her father-in-law all perish in Moab. So here she is. Husband dies. Father-in-law dies. Brother-in-law dies. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, sought to return to the homeland, her homeland. And so Ruth chose to follow her and follow Naomi's God. This moment where maybe her heart started to change. She eventually becomes the wife of a man named Boaz. And during that time, she'd become the great-grandmother of King David. Ruth is a story of deep sorrow. But before she even got to that place, she was seen as being lost, rejected, the sworn enemy, the one that there's no hope, no love, no grace, no mercy deep enough that can fix that. You see, but the book of Ruth beautifully tells a story Beautifully tells the story of Boaz being Ruth's kingsman redeemer. The one with the power and the resources to rescue and protect the vulnerable. As we read that story in the Old Testament, we understand that Boaz points to a greater kingsman redeemer. One that would flow directly from this line of Ruth. The kingsman redeemer of Jesus, Christ the Messiah. See, Ruth's appearance here in the opening genealogy in Matthew of Jesus' lineage in this Christmas story reminds us that Jesus is a redeemer of those who are on the outside, who, like the Moabites, Ruth, were once alien to the courts of the Almighty, once outcasted to the courts of the Almighty, once could not even enter the temples, but now are brought in as full participants in God's family. In Jesus' new family, the outsider and the insider both find their need for grace in him. 
both the outsider and the insider. The beauty of the incarnation is this. The incarnation is a message to anyone who feels unworthy and outcasted. The incarnation is a message of, you are welcomed here. Even those who don't feel welcomed, even those that don't see themselves as valuable or worthy, you are welcomed here. The ones who bow to another God, you are welcome and can find grace here. Those who don't believe at all, you are welcome and you can find grace here. Anyone who's been hurt by the church, anyone who's been in the position where they disqualify the goodness of the church, maybe you need to hear that you are welcome in the presence of God and you too can find grace. Grace is available to us all. Grace is available to us all. At the foot of the manger and at the foot of the cross, grace is available. Are we seeking him though? Are we seeking the goodness of grace? The more I thought about Christmas, the more I started to think about myself and the conversations that I've had recently with some even very good friends. Friends who would look at me and say, you know what Christians are really good for right now? Putting boxes up, labeling people. Good friends who, are, who have walked away from the church because they felt like they weren't welcome. They felt like they were not wanted. They felt like they'd been used and abused. And the more and more I thought about it for me personally, the more and more I started to think that what if there's some truth to that? What if there's some truth that that's what we've become known for? What if we've lost sight of the grace that we're called to extend? What if we've lost sight of the opportunity we have to be a conduit of grace over and over and over again? We build boxes and we say, these are for the fully believing people, the ones who got it all together, the ones who faithfully tithe 25% every single week. These are the box. These are for the, this box, this area is for the people who understand the gospel. They go to church, they do their stuff, they check the boxes and it's really good. They're not quite in that box yet, but they're here. This box is for the ones who are searching have some questions and some doubts, but they're open. This box, though, man, is there any hope for this box? Is this box just for the people who are just basically fuel for the fire of hell? We build boxes, and sometimes we put them on pedestals. Sometimes we want to talk them away and hide them because we're ashamed of them. The more and more that I've reflected back on this year, the more and more it's been a burden on my heart that we've become known for what we are against rather than what we are for. 
more and more I had a conversation over and over, especially when I was in the youth ministry of students questioning sexuality. Ah, but the church hates me. No, man. God loves you. God loves you. And you can find grace and you can find your true identity in him. But to them, their perception of the church was not that. Perception of the church of, oh, they hate this stuff. They hate this. They hate that. Man, like, what if, what if we began to be known for what we're for? The church is known to be a place of good grace. You can come battered up. You can come muddy. You can come destroyed. Your jeans messed up. Hair uncombed. But you can find grace in the church today. What if we become known as a church that is a, a church full of love? It doesn't matter if you mess up or not, that God's love is, is good enough. God's love can cover that. What about a place of mercy, a place of hope? Isn't that who Jesus is? What about for those of us walking in, even just this morning, and we're seeking and feeling this inner turmoil, and all we seek right now is peace? What if people need to hear that the church is of place? Of peace. We create boxes. If I had more labels, some of them would go on there of being judgmental, being insulting, unwelcoming, clicky. Whatever you want to say. But you want to know what I love that God has so much revealed through his text and in my life recently? Is God is a God who looks at these boxes. And he smiles at them. And he says, you know what I can do with that though? I can take whatever box you have. And I can tear it apart, and I can reshape it and rework it and do with it whatever I want. And you want to know why? Because he has this beautiful thing. See, he takes our labels and he puts his label over it, his label of good grace. He has grace for Ruth. He has grace for those that are outcasted, for those who have no hope. He has grace for those who are searching and longing for the Redeemer to come. He has grace for them. And when he looks at Rahab, he has grace for Rahab. He has grace in Rahab's story, the story of brokenness, the story of someone who probably felt like there was, there was so much wrong with them that their profession would be outcasted. Their profession would cause them to leave and live all the way out the outskirts. But God says, my grace is sufficient Come into my presence. Come into my family. Because God has grace. As we close today, the thing over and over and over again that I don't want to miss is this. God's not contained by our boxes. God's grace can't be contained by our boxes. 
It doesn't matter how many times I try to stuff him and his, his power into these boxes. I can't get him to fit. He always has a way of squeaking out. He always has a way of overflowing. He has a way of never fitting in the boxes I've made. And over and over and over again, you know what God has done to the boxes I've made? He's done simply this. He starts to deconstruct them and tear them apart. He starts to flatten them. And he says, the box you've made, my grace covers, and that box is not valid for me anymore. And he looks at this box, the box that I put on and I've, I put these brokenness and these struggles on, the hurts and the pain. And what, once again, what does he do is he, he starts to undo it. And he says, I, I know you feel like you're unworthy. I know you feel like your sin is too great, but my grace is sufficient. And that box has no power anymore. Over and over and over again, God deconstructs, totally tears apart our boxes, totally rips them apart, puts a new label on them, and he says, would you just come to me? Come to me. All who are weak and heavy, come to me. All who are broken and searching, come to me. All who feel like they are so far down on the totem pole, come to me. God's grace can't be contained in our boxes. It never has been able to. And so often in life, we want this thing called fairness. Fairness. When you play sports, you want it to be a fair game. You don't want anybody to cheat. When you do things in life, you want it to be a fair equation. But when it comes to life, when it comes to this, if we want fairness, let me just perspective here. If we want fairness, here's the reality. We make dumb decisions in life. And we deserve the consequences for those decisions. I don't know if I can say dumb in church, but I did. We make dumb decisions in life and we deserve the consequences. Divine fairness sends the whole entire human race to hell. That's fairness. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We want grace. And that's what these stories represent. Grace. As Katie comes up as we close today, it's this reminder for me. Over and over and over again, God works intentionally outside of any box I put up. Why? Because he is dead serious about salvation. He is set on saving people, redeeming people, and restoring people. He's always been serious about restoration in life and redemption in life. He's been serious about invitations in life and tearing down walls and barriers in life. We see that very clearly in the story of Jesus. He makes himself available to all people. It didn't matter your sin. It didn't matter your ethnicity, your racial background. It didn't matter your gender. His invitation was for everybody to come. And if I'm being honest, this holiday season, we may even need some grace and saving from our own 
theology that we have boxed in Christ. That we have refused to believe that he would reveal or interact with people like these people. We may need grace and him redefining what it means for him to invite everybody to the table. We might need even grace of our own perspective of God. Maybe we need grace that God loves this political party or nation as much as I do. Maybe we need grace that God loves comfort like I do. Maybe we need grace that God values church attendance more than a daily interaction with him. We tend to create God in our own image. Why? Because it's comfortable. If I create God in my image with holy jeans and a t-shirt because long sleeves are really warm and you start to sweat a lot, that's a comfortable Jesus for me. But when I read and know about the true Jesus, the Jesus who flipped cultural customs upside down, the Jesus who came and rewrote everything, that's not a comfortable Jesus because he might call me to be uncomfortable. Bob Goff, a world-renowned author, one of my best friends, he doesn't know it, but I know it, we're best friends. Bob Goff said this, the way we love each other lets everybody know that the baby in a manger is not just a decoration. The baby in a manger is not supposed to be just a decoration. The baby in the manger celebrates and reminds us each and every Christmas season that love came down. God came down, put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood with us and did life and got messy. He didn't stay in a manger. He ended up on a cross and then in a grave. He rose again. We are all outsiders. Truthfully, we're all outsiders. But it's because of his great invitation and his great grace that we are welcomed into the family. Jesus, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot Rahab, the prostitute, and the rustic Ruth, the sworn enemy of God's chosen people. But he is akin to the fallen and to the lowly. And he will, he will show his great love to the poorest, most vulnerable, broken, and most obscure people. So this Sunday before Christmas, I just have one question for us. And that's it, one question. Who is the outsider that needs the gospel in the grace of Jesus Christ today? Because you have the opportunity to extend that invite. So who is it? Would you uh, stand with me as I pray? Father, we 
come before you just knowing that you are a God who, who came to us. Knowing that you are a God who stepped out of glory, stepped out of heaven, stepped out of perfection to be born in a manger in the mess of life, in the, the thick of it all. did it out of your great grace and love for us. So Father, I ask that right now that you would just truly keep on stirring within us, Lord. That you would reveal the opportunities, reveal the right people, reveal the right conversations to extend that invite. That this Christmas season, that maybe somebody's life would be different all because somebody walked up to them and said, hey, you should join me at my service. God, I'm just thinking of the people that could be dynamically impacted by your story in a few short days. So give us boldness, give us courage. And speak, Lord, and move like only you can. We pray this in your name. Amen.